If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. Today, I'm excited to talk with my longtime friend, Stephen Shattuck. He's the author of Robots Make Bad Fundraisers, How Nonprofits Can Maintain the Heart in the Digital Age. And we talked about this book way back on episode seven, and we're now on episode 63. Wow. Wow. So, Stephen, that officially makes you a classic. (laughs) I love it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so excited. Stephen is a frequent webinar presenter and conference speaker. He has over 15 years of experience advising nonprofits on donor communications, data management, and digital content, and lots of other things, too. Many of you know Stephen from Bloomerang, where he served as VP of Marketing and then Chief Engagement Officer for more than nine years. These days, Stephen is my colleague at Capital Campaign Pro, where he serves as Director of Marketing. Capital Campaign Pro is a support system that empowers nonprofit leaders to achieve capital campaign success through expert guidance, peer support, and a robust online toolkit of templates, samples, and resources. And that is what we want to talk about today. Earlier this year, Stephen spearheaded some groundbreaking research into how capital campaigns are planned and executed here in North America. And that research culminated into a study called the State of Capital Campaigns. The findings are really fascinating and shed light on some common misconceptions and myths about capital campaigns. So I'm so excited to have Stephen come here and bust through those myths. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's, I feel like we've had so many awesome conversations and, and they just disappear into the ether. So it's, it's good that we're recording one of them. Yeah, indeed. So let's just jump in. Tell us why it was so important to do this research into capital campaigns and how you went about the research. Well, you know, as with so many things in fundraising, there's kind of an absence uh, of research. So many things that we do in fundraising is, is based on previous personal experience, anecdotes, you know, things that get put into blog posts and webinars and presentations and then just kind of get codified as the only way to do things. And uh, there's room for all that. Don't get me wrong. A lot of that stuff is good. But to have that sort of extra layer of, okay, here's some actual concrete research that could perhaps be a foundation for some of those anecdotes and opinions. That's always a good thing. And with capital campaigns, there was none of that, right? So it seemed like a good thing to perhaps establish. And that's what we're going to be doing at Capital Campaign Pro on an annual basis. And this is just the first year of our new study. And capital campaigns are a big deal. They're sometimes very scary. You know, you see these giant goals and it's like, oh man, can we actually do this? Is this going to ruin our organization if it goes wrong? So it seems like a good place to have some foundational knowledge in place to mostly give confidence to people that, 
hey, this is something that you can do. This is something that's achievable. This is something that people do on a regular basis. And so we're happy to put that out into the world. And how we did it was we sent out a survey to our list and we had some awesome partners, Bloomerang, one of them that you mentioned before, we love Bloomerang, High Wave, Aspen Leadership Group. We sent out uh, a three-part survey. And what we did is we split the survey um, into the three parts based on where people are in their campaigns. So the first was people who are just thinking about a campaign. So maybe they're going to do one this year, next year, but they haven't actually started the process yet. Second group is people who are currently in a capital campaign, but it's not yet concluded. And then the third group is people that have recently finished a campaign. And we ask all those people a lot of the same questions, but then it's sort of diverged based on what phase they were in. So we've got a huge, awesome, insightful report that people can go download for free. But there were a couple of really interesting findings that were surprising to us at Capital Campaign Pro, but also things that we weren't so surprised to hear about. But now that we can say like, hey, these hunches that we've had, we have some real proof behind them that people can take into account as they do their own campaigns. Yeah, amazing. I've read the study twice because <laughs> once just wasn't enough. But really, thank you for seeing that void and stepping into it. So good. In the research, you mentioned that, you know, you pose some consistent questions and then depending on the phase they were in, I know that one of the questions that you asked was, how did the global pandemic mm -hmm. and the looming recession affect capital campaign planning? Tell us what you found. Yeah, this was one that we sort of couldn't ignore based on when we did the survey, right? So we started this process in early 2023 and, you know, none of your listeners need me to tell them that the last three years have been very challenging and sort of unique. So that was sort of a, an element to capital campaigns that, hey, we should probably ask about because hopefully none of those things happen again for quite some time. But this was one that was a little surprising to us is that by and large, Folks didn't let either of those things stop them from doing a campaign. So only 27% of respondents delayed in any way due to the pandemic and only 13% delayed because of the sort of wacky economy that we're going through, which seems like it's every day. It's going to be a recession. It's not going to be a recession. We already had a recession. You know what's going on. But it was good to see that people didn't sort of let, you know, those fears stop them. It, you know, they have a case for support. They have a great project. They have a need. Let's go out and seek that support. And this was good because, you know, this happens a lot in the sector. We sort of find ways to talk ourselves out of raising money. Like, oh, donors are fatigued. Donors are going through a tough time. You know, people are losing their jobs and all that is true and should be taken into account. But rarely should you know stop you from seeking funding from a really important need. So that was great to see that by and large campaigns kind of kept moving despite all of the headwinds that perhaps we are facing either economically or with the pandemic, which in many ways we're still in and, and should still be a consideration. Yeah, really encouraging. I think that mm -hmm. sometimes we do kind of devolve to like a scarcity, fear-based place, like, oh, we right. couldn't possibly. But I've heard Amy Eisenstein, one of the co-founders of Capital Campaign Pro, I've heard her say repeatedly, a campaign typically lasts about three years. Right. Like larger campaigns, maybe a bit longer. But the truth is, over a three to five year period, 
the economy ebbs and flows. Yes. There are natural disasters. There are mm -hmm. wars. And so depending on where you are in the campaign, you're likely to encounter some combination of those things. And yet, yeah. if we have a compelling and urgent need, we need to continue fundraising for it. And historically, sometimes giving increases during those times because people recognize like, wow, there are people out there that really need help. And we saw this in 2020 and 2021, giving was way up. I know it's sort of come back down to earth a little bit, but you know, to decide for the donor without talking to them is never a good idea. And it was nice to see that a lot of folks didn't fall into that trap with their capital. Yeah, so good. You know, there's also been a longstanding fear that capital campaigns will often cannibalize annual funds. Yeah, this was like the number one thing that Amy and Andrea, our fearless leaders at, at Capital Campaign Pro, were most curious about. And, and I've seen this manifest in other ways. One thing that came to mind immediately to me was this idea that, you know, Giving Tuesday is going to cannibalize year-end giving, right? And there's lots of things like that, where despite there actually being no evidence that those things happen, maybe on a one-to-one, -one, you know, an individual basis that may happen. But what we found was that, and this wasn't a surprise to us, but now we have the concrete research is that there's very little evidence that doing a capital campaign cannibalizes the annual fund. So this idea of like, oh, if we raise all this money for the specific purpose, will people give to that instead of, you know, their usual annual gift or skip their annual gift in subsequent years? We didn't see that happen. We asked people, okay, during your campaign, what has happened to your annual fund? And 79% of respondents said that it either stayed the same or increased during the campaign. So that is a strong majority there. And then we also asked people who have finished a campaign, what has happened in the subsequent years to the annual fund? And only 9% said that it has dropped. So a pretty small amount there. And there's a lot of reasons why your annual fund could go up or down. So I know there's a big kind of correlation is not causation thing happening here. But to at least help alleviate some of those fears that one is going to cannibalize the other, it seems to be a, a pretty rare occurrence. Yeah, I found that so affirming. Like, yes, yeah. we finally have evidence for this. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I found it just so amazing, too, that when you look at that 79% that either stayed the same or increased their annual fund, 40% stayed the same and 39% increased if you break that right. down. Yeah. So it was almost an even split. It wasn't like 80% stayed the same. In right, right. And so it was really <laughs> encouraging. Yeah. Let's talk about feasibility studies or planning studies. So I have found with the work I do with Capital Campaigns and Capital Campaign Pro that there are two schools of thought. Hmm. And this I hear mostly from like foundations who hmm. maybe the nonprofit has gone to a foundation to see if they would fund a feasibility study. Right. And one of two schools, either there's a belief that feasibility studies are crucial to determining the right campaign priorities. You know, what is the appetite in your community for what you're raising money for? Yep. And certainly to help us get a feel, it's a bit of a litmus test on the campaign financial goal. So that's school of thought number one. Right. 
school of thought number two is they're irrelevant, right? Mm -hmm. Nonprofits are going to do what they want to do anyway, and the feasibility study is a waste of money. Now, you asked this question. You posted it in the research. So tell. Yeah, I, it's who named this. I think we don't do ourselves any favors with the. It's kind of like plan giving. It's like, well, most giving is planned. Maybe we should just call that legacy giving and, and yes. it better tells the story. Same with feasibility. It's like, you know, it's not, are you going to do a campaign? It's like, okay, we've decided to do one. Now is the goal correct? Is the case for support correct? You know, what are all these stakeholders think? And I think that the findings of our research should help to alleviate that second case that you described there, which I think is really apt. So we asked people a bunch of questions about the feasibility study. Did you do one? You know, did you do it with a consultant? Did you do it on your own? That's all in the research and it's kind of interesting. But we specifically, we asked them about the impact. So the people who did do one, what happened to the campaign? What were some of the benefits? versus the people who didn't do one. And we kind of looked at their other answers and compared and contrasted. But a couple of things kind of jumped out to us. One was the goal. So for 51% of people who did a feasibility study, their goal increased. So over half, a little, a tiny bit over half, they were sort of undervaluing perhaps how much money they could raise. And then going through this process and talking to people and talking to donors and stakeholders, found out, oh, actually, we can raise more. So that's good. So that you know, equates to more money. That's a big number. That's a big number. 31% didn't change and only 18% decrease. Folks were kind of in the minority who had sort of overshot what they think they could raise, which is not a bad thing. Perhaps that was a more realistic goal that they found out. So that's sort of a benefit there. Either your campaign's going to be a little more realistic or you find out, actually, we can raise more money than we thought we could. And, and that's good for, for the mission. Yeah. The other thing is we asked people sort of cross-referenced, like I said, people who did or did not do a study with some of the other ancillary benefits of doing a campaign besides dollars raised. And there was a big difference in a couple categories. So 94% of people who did a feasibility study said that one of the main benefits of doing the campaign was that their major donor relationships were strengthened versus only 66% among people who did not do a feasibility study. And talking to major donors is a pretty significant component of doing a feasibility study. So that jump in major donor relationship building was not only significant, but could have really long tail benefits years down the line. Speaking of planned giving, just being kind of one of them. Sure. And then another thing that was interesting is we looked at people's percentage of their goal raised. So people who have finished their campaign. Among the cohort that did a feasibility study, they averaged about 115% of their goal raised. So they beat their goal by 15% versus people who did not do a feasibility study. They only reached about 101% of their campaign goal raised. So this tells us a couple of things. One, as an aside, capital campaigns by and large are pretty successful, right? So most people are raising above their goal, which is good. But doing a feasibility study, that's an extra 15%. And I think our average amount was around $8 million. So 15% of $8 million, that's a pretty good chunk of change. I think that's over a million dollars if my arithmetic from middle school is helping me out here. It's it, the numbers in the research, but that's a pretty good chunk of change. Yeah. So when you weigh the cost and the investment of doing the feasibility study, 
that pays dividends in terms of real dollars. Not to mention all the other cool things that happen, like your major donor relationships become strengthened in the process. So by and large, they're a good thing to do. Now it is an investment in time and money, but one, like I said, that that can and, and probably will pay dividends. Ooh, really powerful. Let's talk about a component of the campaign typically, which is endowment. Mm -hmm. After all we've been through, right? Pandemic, yes. economic uncertainty, like rapidly evolving our staff and our programs and our fundraising from typically place-based to virtual, mm -hmm. now back to some combination of those things, maybe a hybrid model. Through all that, we've become more present than ever that for the need for financial sustainability. Mm -hmm. And so I think endowment is growing endowment, recovering from some of the losses our endowments may have experienced through the ups and downs on the stock market. Mm -hmm. What role does endowment play in campaigns according to your research? Well, this was a really interesting one because as we look at people who moved through the campaign, this is one that sort of changed. So we asked everybody why you're thinking about doing this campaign or, or why you're doing it for the people that are sort of in it or, you know, recently completed it. The main reason was a capital project. So a building, right, or renovation or a new construction. Only about 6% of people said that the campaign was purely for endowment. And this sort of tracks with what we anecdotally see at Capital Campaign Pro is it's pretty rare that someone would do a capital campaign for just endowment. And what was interesting about that 6% is it actually shrunk to 3% amongst the people who actually began the campaign and allocated dollars to a specific purpose. It went from 6 to 3% of people who did a campaign purely for endowment. So as a company, we have always been a little... I guess a little dubious of people who come and talk to us and say, we want to do a capital campaign for an endowment. We usually say, well, that's not usually a good, it should be a component of your campaign, right? Endowment is really important for all the reasons you just said, Tammy. But as a case for support, it typically doesn't resonate as much with a potential donor as much as maybe some other purpose like a capital building or an expansion or a new facility or something. More scholarships, programmatic. Right. Yeah. Wow. And actually scholarships is perhaps a better way to package, right? Sort of that endowment conversation we find. So this was one where we, we were sort of confirmed in our thinking through the research that is pretty rare that would happen. Now you can't, and, and people did do that and, and perhaps were successful, but in terms of endowment, what we find is it's a better to be a, a component of the case for support and not sort of the main course, if, if that analogy rings true. Yeah, yeah, love it. Beyond the dollars, you talked a little bit about this. Beyond yes. the dollars, that there are big benefits from conducting the campaign itself. Mm -hmm. You know, you talked about the benefits of conducting the feasibility study, but there were even more benefits from conducting a capital campaign well beyond mm -hmm. just achieving the dollar goal. Talk yeah. to us about some of those, because there were many yeah, these, this was interesting because people always care about the dollars, which they probably should care about primarily, but there are a lot of other neat ancillary benefits. And we mentioned that major donor relationship strengthening. That was number one. So of all the, the possible responses that people could give, 
72% of respondents said that major donor relationship strengthening was one of the biggest benefits of doing the campaign. I think we can say that was probably the biggest benefit of doing a campaign beyond just the money raised. And remember, that number goes up to 94% if you do a feasibility study, and it shrinks to 66% if you do not do one. So that was kind of the average number there. Other cool things. Uh, 50% said that they, as an organization, and probably them personally as as the respondent to the survey, they felt like they got better at soliciting larger gifts. And for some organizations, if it's your first capital campaign, either as an org or as a a fundraiser, as an employee, this is probably maybe the first time you've sat down and asked for that big gift. So it can be a really big confidence booster, which is always a great thing for the rest of your career. Other interesting things, they kind of dropped into the high 30s, but staff effectiveness increasing overall, the development staff, I should say. And also putting in place better fundraising systems. So doing a campaign of this nature can be a good catalyst for perhaps putting some processes in place that weren't there before, maybe kind of getting your act together in certain areas. So that was an interesting one to see that, you know, we didn't necessarily think would be significant. And then I think the last one uh, worth noting is about a third of people said that the board became more engaged in fundraising. And we haven't said this, but in the survey, we actually split it by small shops and kind of everybody else. And for small shops, this was one where the number really increased. And it kind of makes sense because for most of those small shops, it was their first campaign and therefore probably the first time board members got involved in this process. So when you put together better relationships, the board getting more engaged and the staff kind of leveling up in terms of their confidence and experience. Well, it can be a really good thing to go through, um, not just as an organization, but sort of for your own professional development. So, you know, if perhaps you're in an organization and there's talk about a capital campaign sometime in the future and you're getting a little nervous, hopefully this kind of gives you confidence like, oh, this will be a, a really awesome experience for me personally that perhaps I could leverage for future promotions or, you know, that sort of next level up the org chart and not be this big, scary thing that's going to kind of take over your life for three years. It will a little bit, but <laughs> there's some benefits there as well. Yeah, it is the perfect trifecta, right? Increased staff effectiveness, yep. better developed fundraising systems and protocols and board members more engaged in fundraising like that trifecta. It's no wonder that post capital campaign that 39% of organizations are raising more in annual fund and 40% are maintaining their level of giving. So again, it's really encouraging. And of course, we'll include a link to the research so everyone can go and download their own copy and pour through it. And I just want to say it's so beautifully put together. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can absolutely envision doing some screen grabs of some of these diagrams and pie charts and including them in some strategic planning documents or in some recommendation documents. You know, as we move into 2024, and many of our listeners may be thinking, we do have capital needs, right? I I actually was just talking with a, a member of my fundraising transformer community last week, and they've had like a water main bust and like they've, it's completely shut down one of their buildings. And we talked about capital or like, what are their options? So whether it's 
program expansion, increased needs in your community, or like one of my friends in the transformer community, like we've had a disaster and we need to do something, right? So a capital campaign can be in your future. And I feel like this study equips you with literally, you named it so aptly, the state of capital campaigns. Yeah. By and large, our hope is that it gives people confidence and not only that they can do it, but that most people are successful and there's so many other benefits to doing it besides just the dollars raised. Beautiful. Well, if you've enjoyed today's conversation and the amazing insights that Stephen has shared, just know this is the tip of the iceberg. We, as I said, have included the link to the full report in the show notes. Stephen, you might recall from episode seven, when we spoke, at the end of each of these conversations, I like to ask a few rapid fire, insightful questions to provide even more value to our listeners. And who knows, 60 some episodes later, your answers might be different. I, yeah, I didn't go back and listen, so I kind of hope they are. <laughs> I, I bet they will. You know, we are all growing and evolving. Right. The first question is, what's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? You are not your donor. <laughs> Perfect. What book do you recommend to our audience and why? Well, one I've been looking through for another project recently is called Resonate. It's by Nancy Duarte. It's all about visual storytelling. So I was putting together a slide deck and it's one that I always go to for slides specifically, but I think there's also a lot of applications for things like direct mail and other perhaps marketing materials that a fundraiser may put together. So check that out called Resonate. And there's a companion book called Slideology, uh, also by Nancy Duarte, that is is specifically for presentation slides. So they may have some applications in a, in a capital campaign context, perhaps. Nice. All right. Next stop, Amazon.com. <laughs> what are the three most important traits a successful fundraiser must possess? Can I cheat and say courage three times? <laughs> yes. With all the things we talked about today, it's like, no, keep your foot on the gas. Like you can do it. You have a good cause. You know, be sensitive to what's happening in the world, certainly, but don't let that stop you. Don't decide for the donor. Yeah. Courage, courage, courage. There you go. <laughs> what's your favorite fundraising application or tool? Oh, one I really like right now. I think our mutual buddy, Cherry and Koshi, has the nonprofit OS, which I now is part of the iWave family, which is also a really good tool. So if you're into chat GPT and using AI, this is one specifically for fundraisers to help with, you know, writing appeals and, and things like that. So check that out. Awesome. How about your favorite conference and why? Well, there's two on my radar right now. So we're recording this in late October, but there's two that I've had the opportunity through Capital Campaign Pro to sponsor. One is the Women of Color in Fundraising and Philanthropy Conference, which is coming up in just a couple of weeks. And another one is called A Path to Action. It's a virtual conference for Black fundraisers specifically. So if you are in either of those two cohorts, check those out. Those look like really awesome conferences for folks coming up here in the next just couple of weeks. Awesome. And we'll include links to those as well. Yes, yes. All right. Last question. Stephen, knowing what you know now about fundraising or capital campaign fundraising, (laughs) what advice would you give your younger self just getting started in the profession? My very first day out of college in 2006, I got on a plane, my first job, I flew to Naples, Florida to make a video 
for capital campaign. I think it was a church down there that was doing a capital campaign. So it's sort of funny, like it's come full circle now. I'm back in capital campaigns. I thought, I wish I had that research with me back in 2006. I don't know if it would have been different or not. And that's why we're going to keep doing the research. But yeah, it would have been interesting to see how they were viewing some of those things. But at least they were doing one, right? So they didn't let any kind of fear govern their, their prospects there. Maybe plan giving, right? It's like all the nonprofits I've been involved with, we had started plan giving 20 years ago. What would we be reaping now? So yeah. start that if you haven't. You know, the best time to plant a tree is yesterday or whatever that, that axiom is. <laughs> I think it is the best time to have planted a tree was 20 years ago. Yeah. The next best next time. Next best time is today. Is today. Absolutely. Do it. Stephen, you are awesome. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, this was fun. Just go to uh, capitalcampaignpro.com slash research and yeah. you can grab it totally free. And there's tons of stuff we didn't talk about, like you said. Yeah, there's lots more. So if you want to learn more about Stephen and Capital Campaign Pro, we've included links in the show notes as well as the State of Capital Campaigns Research and the other resources that we've talked about today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a fundraising transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransform.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of $27.1 million. As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.